Before we continue, I've just finished listening to a new episode from The Case Files. A warning, tissues are needed. It's an upsetting but very important story of a woman being repeatedly ignored by medical staff with tragic consequences. A mother's worst nightmare became a reality for Muna Abarizik. She knew something was wrong with her baby Mohammed, but multiple medical professionals missed signs of a deadly disease. Her case led to changes being made in medical practices, and it's just one of the many in the series of real-life stories behind some of the most astonishing cases in recent legal history, and how people have been able to use the legal system to right wrongs and get justice. So while you're waiting for the next episode of the storyteller Violent Delights, go and have a listen to The Case Files. You won't be disappointed. Previously on The Storyteller Violent Delights, guilty verdicts for Sheila Garvey and her lover Brian Tevendale, while co-accused Alan Peters walked free. They had chosen to believe him rather than me. I waited, trembling. I knew what the jury foreman would say next. And the judgments outside the courtroom continued, with many believing Sheila was involved in the murder plot. They had obviously decided that they should dispose of Max Garvey. If you had left your husband half drunk in his bed, I would have thought she was involved. I'm Isla Traquair, and this is the storyteller Violent Delights, a true story of love which began as a fairy tale but ended in a nightmare. From castles to a courtroom, this story rocked Scotland like no other. It's a crime so historic, only a few characters are alive to tell the tale. And I'm tracking them down for what might be the last chance to discover the truth behind the headlines and who killed Maxwell Garvey and why. December 3rd, 1968. A white police jaguar sped southwards from Aberdeen and across to the west of Scotland beyond Glasgow. The countryside's normal beauty looked dark and dreary on this cold and wet winter day. As Sheila gazed out the window for her final glances of the outside world for many years, a horrible reminder appeared on the horizon of what her life could have been had she chosen a different path. Instead of seeking out her own kingdom, if she'd remained in the duty of the royal household, it's unlikely she'd have met Maxwell Garvey. As we neared Greenock, I saw the royal yacht Britannia anchored not far offshore in the Firth of Clyde. I wondered who was to board her. Princess Margaret, who had smiled at me as she danced the Paul Jones at Balmoral all those years ago, or... Prince Charles, who had tugged playfully his grandmother's pearl necklace. Perhaps they would be heading for somewhere in the sun, enjoying the trip aboard their lovely ship as she sailed across the great free ocean. There would be no freedom for Sheila Garvey. She stepped through the daunting heavy doors of Gateside Prison and into the red brick building, which at that time housed all of Scotland's female prisoners. The 33-year-old, known for her immaculate appearance and sense of style, was stripped naked, inspected, and given a bright orange dress and purple cardigan. 
The comforts of the tiny female unit in Aberdeen seemed like a five-star hotel in comparison to the four-tiered prison hall of Gateside. She was put into an observation cell with a straw mattress and a cracked chamber pot. There were scratches on the back of the door, a grim souvenir from a previous tenant and a hint of their state of mind. She now had nothing but time to reflect on her romance with Brian and the events that led her to a suicide watch cell. I had always thought of marriage as sacred, the close-knit conventional family atmosphere in which I had been brought up had instilled in me that marriage vows were for keeps. And although I was aware from the early days of my marriage to Max Garvey that all would not be sweetness and light, I never for one moment imagined that anything could happen to tear us apart. If, on the day I married Max, someone had even hinted at the tangled, twisted and bizarre series of events which led to the collapse of our life together, and to the final tragedy, I would have laughed outright. It is impossible for me now to say whether or not I would have fallen in love with Brian Tevendale under normal circumstances. I was only given the option of one set of circumstances and they were far from normal. But there are many different kinds of loving and sometimes love grows from strange roots. Those roots had been planted in tainted soil and soon their love began to rot. They exchanged love letters in the first few weeks. Brian had even written to the Secretary of State requesting permission to marry Sheila. He had urged her to do the same but she did not. There are mixed reports as to what ended the love affair. One was that Sheila was told Brian was going to sell her letters to the newspapers. The other is visits from her children were less likely to be approved if she continued a relationship with their father's killer. Despite the sacrifice, it was decided the visits were damaging for the children's emotional and mental health. And then another tragedy struck. Six months into her sentence, she received word her mother, Edith Watson, had died. As her funeral took place, a letter arrived at the prison. The cursive scroll in the envelope familiar, dated the 24th of January, 1969. Mrs. Sheila Garvey. Only to be opened by Sheila, if anything should happen to me. From Mum. My dearest Sheila, if you ever receive this, I will be with my mum and dad. Don't ever grieve for me, except that if you are still in Gateside, I will not be with the Bairns, and that thought is terrible to me. However, you cannot bargain with God. If I could, I would gladly give up my life to be able to let you free. Don't ever give up. Keep your head high. You were never bad, never. So always remember that. If I can, I will be looking after you from somewhere. So think of me standing beside you always. It was, if we had known, the saddest part of your life when you married into the Garveys. 
No wonder I cried all the time you were being married. You have always been greatly loved by me, and the love I have for you has never changed, although perhaps at one time you thought so. I cannot write more. My heart is too full at having to leave you and the bairns. So please let God bless you, and may you be happy yet, as I think you will. All my love forever, until we meet again, Mother. There was an extra note added to the bottom of the letter, saying she'd been given this time by the doctors in Aberdeen, and all the recent happenings had nothing to do with her illness. Sheila described her initial years in prison as a nightmare. However, she undertook courses including hospitality, dressmaking, cooking and secretarial and was eventually put in charge of the library. She gradually forged relationships with other inmates and became a moral support to some younger prisoners. And on one occasion, she stopped a teenager from killing herself when she found her dangling from the railing of the top gallery, which had a 40-foot drop. She also developed a good relationship with the governor, Lady Martha Bruce, who spearheaded many reforms in the prison system. Sheila was eventually allowed out on day release to Glasgow, and journalist Stuart McCartney was there to see her. I uh, got a tip, and I wouldn't tell you from France or where, that she would be in Glasgow on a certain day, but we didn't know where she was going, and I followed her. I followed her into, from Lanark into Glasgow and we lost her in uh, Lewis's, which is a multi-story, I can't believe this. And uh, I had to phone for reinforcement. We had six reporters trying to find this woman in the gutter uh, uh, coming out and she had Sheila Gavi with her. And, uh, and we told her under no circumstances to approach her photographer. Anyway, she went away and we got her at Charing Cross and uh, my photographer and uh, I got a marvellous front page picture of her on our first day out of, she wasn't out of freedom, she was out in bail. And, uh, and that was my life, Sheila Garvey. In the spring of 1975, a new female prison was opened near Stirling. Sheila Garvey was prisoner number one at Cordonville, which was a different world to Gateside. There was no more screaming and crying coming from other cells during the night. They sunbathed in the gardens, grew vegetables, and took pride in their small accommodation units. Three years later, now aged 43, Sheila left Cordonville unceremoniously, with many inmates believing she was just going on a three-day trip to visit family, which she'd previously been allowed to do. She took the train to Aberdeen and was met by a social worker who drove her to her lawyer's office to receive keys to a guest house in the city, which she'd inherited from an aunt. There was a small family celebration that night, and then she was alone. She'd served 10 years in prison. Brian Tevendale, was released on life parole also shortly after his former lover. Roughly six months into her freedom, she married a guest who'd been staying at her boarding house, a Rhodesian called David McClellan. 
a union that didn't escape the notice of the press and led to Gordon Hay, who devoured every newspaper article of the trial as a teenager, to come face to face with the woman he'd read so much about. We didn't know where Sheila was. We knew she was out and on, on parole, yeah, on, on a kind of final parole. She had been out in, in a day's shopping and, uh, you know, uh, for a day uh, and had been caught on camera back in the, in the sort of mid-70s. Um, but um, in 1978, I was actually a day off, I got a phone call from uh, my news editor at the Press and Journal, uh, Eric Stevenson, saying that uh, they'd received a tip from a, a freelance photographer who had been covering some wedding uh, down at the registry office in the centre of Aberdeen in uh, Upper Kirkgate. And they, someone in the registry office had said, well, that was interesting, that name there, there was a, uh, the bride in a wedding today, uh, Sheila Watson. And so he'd phoned the news desk to to tell them, you know, that there might be something in this. There's a Sheila Watson, don't know who it is or whatever. So, of course, the news editor knew exactly who Sheila Watson was. Phoned me, uh, uh, um, and uh, I was having an appointment, in fact, at home at the time. I said, look, you know, this may or may not be true. The registry office is closed, so there's no way of checking it. Uh, you know, there was no kind of online or anything at the time. So I dashed into the office and then became the search for Sheila Garvey with people out running around all sort of wedding venue, wedding reception venues and all sorts of things all over the city and couldn't throw up anything and um, I'm sitting there thinking I'm not going to get this and my phone rang on my desk and this uh, voice with an accent which I now know was Rhodesian uh, said um, uh, are you Gordon Hay? And I said um, yes. He said well, my name is David McClellan and well, I knew exactly who he was because he was the other name on the uh, the registry office. Uh, he was the bridegroom of the day. He said, "You don't know me, but you may have heard of the woman I married today. Her name is Sheila Watson or Sheila Garvey, as you would have known her." I said, "Oh yes." He said, "I'm calling from," and he gave me the number of the house in Holborn Street, Aberdeen. He said, "If you come near this house tonight, he said I'll punch your lights out." I had to think that by giving us the address, he in some way wanted some kind of attention. So <clears throat> I uh, managed to contact uh, a couple of colleagues who were on a radio car to meet me in the, the Hawthorne Bar in uh, uh, Holborn Street. Uh, I said, I think we found them. Um, so we... Um, I, shot down there with a photographer and we met up and I said okay right this is how we play it I'll go to the door you guys come at my back because this guy sounds if he wants to be violent or maybe he doesn't I don't know ready for action the team travelled to the home and got chatting to the next door neighbour over the fence to check who lived there and sure enough it was who we it was the home of uh, Sheila Garvey <coughs> the door burst open this bear of a man came running down the, the path, screaming to abuse, and a big uh, cotton wool bandage over her right eye. Apparently he'd been involved in a fight uh, at the previous night in the uh, the Hawthorne bar, but uh, that's another story. Uh, so anyway, we quieted him down and he invited us in. 
So we got taken into a back room in the, the boarding house that Sheila had been running. It was an aunt, but a boarding house apparently. We didn't know that at the time. Um, uh, and he was he was chatting away. He wasn't telling us that much, but we were in a room where the remains of the wedding breakfast had been, you know, the remains of food and bottles of wine and beer and that sort of thing. And then, all of a sudden, the door opened and in walked on Undoubtedly, Sheila, very pale in face, but wearing a blue and white crochet dress, and I knew straight away who she was. And she looked at me and said, "How old are you?" And uh, I said, "I'm 24. Um, I was 15 when all this was going on, or so." Uh, and she said, "Well, what are you trying to do to me here?" And I said, "Well, you know, uh, we wanted to interview you." She said. Um, uh, I'm not giving any interviews, I'm not telling you anything. She said, um, said, you know, I'm trying to start a new life for myself here. This is a business, it's going all right. Um, she said, there is no Garvey money here, which was, <laughs> you know, I thought, well, that's a great quote to run with. There is no Garvey money here. And she said, and, you know, I have uh, um, paid my debt to society uh, and I'm free now. And I said, well, and I knew, no, it wasn't going to go any further than this. And I said, the, the interview, I mean, and I said, well, with the greatest of respect, Sheila, you haven't repaid your debt to society because you're on life parole. And I said, you know, uh, you were sentenced to life, uh, you're out on parole, but the the sentence has not been served. I said, you put one foot wrong, you're back inside. Um, and that was a kind of, <laughs> that was almost the killer, the killer of the, the, the night. But anyway, she... Um, I shouldn't have said that killer. That sort of uh, ended the uh, the chat, and we were asked to leave. But um, so we went, and um, it gave us a front page story for the Saturday morning. Um, we didn't have a we didn't have a picture because we were inside the house, so and she wouldn't pose up, and nor would the big new husband. Uh, but uh, the. I remember us chatting chatting later on that night. You know, saying, "Well, you know, that's hardly a." That's hardly a love affair made in heaven, that one, you know, the big bruiser from the pub. And Sheila, who, you know, despite all that had gone before, looked quite sort of uh, demure and, um, uh, you know, just n n not not with the same game as him, you know. Uh, and that was my one and only meeting with her. So what was it like, you know, going from being this uh, teenage boy poring over these newspaper reports of this trial and then all these years later uh, in your profession as a journalist coming face to face with this the embodiment yeah the embodiment of you know it, it, it was almost in, in my mind i think look i, I don't know <clears throat> what was in my mind at the time but thinking back it was almost sort of looking at a uh, at, i've got a film star she, she was exactly as i would have pictured her um but this was her and you know and flesh and blood sort of thing, you know. Uh, she was she was very pale faced. I mean, it it, it, it my immediate thought was cell block parlor. Uh, whether that's right or not, but because she had been out for you know a few months by that stage. I mean, she was still a very ha a good looking woman, you know. You'd say handsome rather than pretty, um, you know, um, with a fair hair. Uh, but she was very very pale. It may well have been a natural colour, uh, but, you know, um, I, I've met 
uh, cons, ex-cons and ever before and you know that certainly was the sort of the look of her uh, that night uh, or maybe she was just kind of a bit uh, shocked by the fact that the uh, Her Majesty's press were on her, on her tail um, but the next morning of course she woke up, the story was on the front page of the Press and Journal that, that morning, the Saturday, and uh, the uh, the Sunday papers were all camped outside at the bottom of her, uh, her uh, path. The following morning, Cam was trained on the house and everything like that. And did you, you know, with the knowledge that you had of the case from the time, and then of course meeting her, what, what impressions, and I know this is obviously just purely from your personal experience, but what impression did you get of who she was and where she was at her life in that point? It struck me as slightly strange that um, you know, she'd say something like, uh, I've repaid my debt to society. There was no sound of remorse in her voice, you know, uh, by saying, you know, I've served my time, uh, I have repaid my debt is is about Sheila. There doesn't there's no remorse built into that on the fact that, you know, she killed the father of her children. Or she was involved in the killing of the father of her children, she was involved in the plot. She more than probably didn't pull the trigger, you know, uh, she always claimed that but with Tevendale uh say, you know, they, they, they did tell another story. Uh and uh, as I say there was no kind of remorse in her tone or in her words but then maybe I wasn't the person that she would show that to and the husband the new husband didn't seem to be in any way concerned about her uh, her rather uh, dark past apart from the professional goal of meeting Sheila accomplished Gordon had other stakes in the line well, I became a journalist about uh, four years after the trial and uh, the uh, uh, Subsequently, a friend of mine became the who who was a guy who was the chief reporter or bureau chief of the Daily Record in in, in Aberdeen, <coughs> a big uh, uh, guy called Jim Gillespie, and I think the Garvey trial was the highlight or one of the highlights of his career, and we had this kind of. Uh, semi-joking bet that the story wasn't really over until Sheila got freed and somebody got the interview with Sheila and we had a, a kind of half and a half bet, uh, a whiskey and a, and, a, and a beer bet that which one would get the first interview and uh, I got Sheila face to face six months after Big Jim died so I was never able to collect the bet. To call it the first interview she ever gave is perhaps an exaggeration because it wasn't quite an interview, but I was in her home and uh, you know, and I was talking to her and I, probably I said more to her than she said to me. In fact, definitely I said more to her than she said to me. Round about the same time, Evis Ritchie, who'd by then left the police, saw Sheila in a department store and was torn as to whether she should approach her. One day I was in the BHS with a friend and we were having a coffee and I just glanced up and I went, oh, my goodness, what's she like? Oh, I'd be sitting over there. You know, she was on her own. Um, and I think if I had been on my own, I would have gone across and just said hello, you know. But because I was with a friend, obviously, I wasn't going to embarrass her. 
But uh, I wouldn't have embarrassed her anyway. But I mean, if I'd been on my own, it would have been a lot simpler. That must have been strange, though, to... You know, it was strange. I just sort of looked at her and I thought, gee, you know, you look, you still look good. You know, she did. Still smart, still the blonde hair. And um, I thought, my God, you know, really, I know about you. I know you. Fascinating, but no, I didn't. I just, like I said, if I'd been on my own, I would have been very, very tempted to go and say hello. The marriage to David McClellan didn't last. Thirteen years her junior, she admitted she'd been lonely and afraid and married in haste. She claimed the marriage ended in bitterness and violence, which didn't surprise Gordon. Shortly after that night, I mean, he... Uh, I suppose it was a point where the marriage was breaking down. I mean, he did a deal uh, with a national daily and they took him off to London and had a bit of a yahoo with him down there. So, you know, um, as I say, probably not a match made in heaven and uh, he was he was quite soon off his mark. It wasn't the perfect wedding picture with a man in a, in a big cotton wool t- taped over his, his eye. You know, the results of a... Of a Barbara all the night before his wedding, the eve of the wedding, uh, was hardly a, you know, the, the preparation for nuptials. Sheila did eventually find happiness in her third marriage to drilling engineer Charles Mitchell, until he died eleven years later. After that, she made a surprise move back to the coastal community to run a seafront guesthouse not far from the pubs where Maxwell's wild ways began. The business was successful, and she was often seen walking her dog on the beach, and was mostly left alone to live her life peacefully, apart from the odd visit from a journalist, in the hope that might be the day she decided to do an interview. In 1992, young reporter Lorna Hughes, now editor of the Sunday Mail, was sent to do just that. So I was working for a local newspaper in Montrose, the Montrose Review, and like with all local newspapers, we have pages to fill and uh, sometimes that, that can be quite difficult. And I had heard the story about Sheila from one of the other uh, older reporters. And we were in the area round about Stonehaven, St Cyrus, and we decided to go and knock on her door, see how she was and talk to her. Now, um, I had heard um, a bit about the story. I knew a little bit at that time um, and it was fascinating, obviously. So she came to the door and she was dressed quite smartly. She smiled at us and we identified, we said who we were. We said we were from the review and we were asking whether or not um, she wanted to talk to us a bit. At that point, it had been the best part of 20 plus years since she had been released from prison and she had not spoken since she had written her book. She was really polite and really welcoming and really nice and she said, um, from, she said something like, I think I've said all I wanted to say, but it's very nice of you to come. And um, 
I think that we tried to say, well, how's how's business doing? Are you busy at the moment? What's happening? And she was very she was very gracious and she was very polite and very well mannered and you know we are used to certainly I'm used to um as a journalist getting a door slammed in your face sometimes if somebody doesn't want to talk to you and that wasn't the case here at all um she she was very open and she wasn't upset or angry that we had knocked on our door at all she seemed to just accept it and we left and I remember leaving and that of course I suppose made me more interested and I remember going back to the office asking more questions and finding out getting old bound volumes um, from the review way back and actually seeing far more details about the case. So that was the first time that I'd encountered her and um, I suppose I, I didn't realise that you know, many, many years later, uh, she'd also come up again, um, just in a completely different way. Years later, Lorna received a phone call from a woman with a childlike voice and Scottish accent, which led to regular communications over a number of years and an insight into this old murder case that she hadn't anticipated. Well, you're talking decades later. That's what's so fascinating. Um, I ended up um, working as a reporter at the Sunday Mail and in about 2006-2007 I got a call from a woman um, calling herself Wendy Drew and I don't know whether she'd read something I'd written but she wanted to speak to me and I think it was one of my other colleagues that took the call first of all and when I called the number back and this was a number, it was a landline number in Taunton in Somerset and uh, this woman answered the phone and I said who I was and she said, oh, I'm so glad you phoned me back. I really, really want to speak to you about um, my past and, you know, I think it's really important and I think I should talk about it. And, of course, you know, the name Wendy Drew meant absolutely nothing to me, nor would it have to anybody else. And, you know, she said, my my mother killed my father. So immediately you're thinking, and she spoke with a Scottish accent as well, um, a very childlike voice. You know, you, I was clearly talking to somebody who I would have said was, you know, late 30s, maybe early 40s, but... Um, very very childlike and when I heard the my mum killed my dad I I suppose I thought right okay is this something relatively recent and then she started talking and as soon as she mentioned my dad you would have heard of my dad he was called Maxwell Garvey of course the penny drops I mean if you're a journalist in Scotland and you've been working for any length of time um, you know it would have it would have dropped but of course I immediately remembered her mother and she started talking and you know she wouldn't stop talking um about her life about her life since her her father was murdered and her mother went to prison and her own life as well and and the kind of twists and turns that had taken so 
it, it was very obvious and then a quick search afterwards I spoke to her probably for about 20 minutes or so and came off and and looked her up couldn't find anything but then I found all the the cuttings on Maxwell Garvey in the trial and of course the name Wendy was Maxwell Garvey's eldest daughter um so I then thought well I need to speak to her again I also need to verify who she actually is too um so we probably had about three or four more telephone conversations within you know a week or so and uh, again it's it's heartbreaking because you were talking to a woman who as as I said later found out I think she was in her mid-40s by then who whose dad was murdered whose mum was jailed for the murder she and her two siblings were cared for, I think, by their grandmother for a brief period and then by foster carers. And obviously they'd lost their dad. She she didn't see her mother at all throughout her, her um, childhood. And tragically, but maybe ironically, what happens is at the age of 16, she... Um, meets a man and falls pregnant they get married they have a baby and I think she at that point they moved down south I don't think either people knew who Wendy Lloyd her brother and Angela her sister were when they were growing up I don't think I clearly think that the the authorities had done quite a good job in trying to give them some sort of normal childhood um, they were with foster carers in Lanarkshire, I think, for most of their their school years, and um, but Wendy, you know, as as all children missing both her mother and her father lost her grandmother, um, I think there were some relatives, but they weren't particularly close, and the whole scandal of what had happened, you know, she became quite an unhappy young woman thought she'd found love, married her boyfriend very young and moved down south and tried to make a tried to make her go of a normal life but um it was clear and she she was fully she admitted this right from the beginning that she had mental health problems. Um I think she was diagnosed as schizophrenic at one point. Um she had issues with her weight, issues with, you know, how she was perceived. Um, it, it was really tragic. That marriage ended and her daughter, um, who at that time when I spoke to her would, would have been in her early 20s, um, she'd had very little contact with her own daughter. So history kind of repeated itself. The relationship that you formed with her and you know uh, as a journalist I've certainly had uh, fo- well, these phone calls out of the blue and then you end up being in touch with them years later there's a that but it's she was clearly looking for a connection and uh, strangely finding it um, with a journalist that she could talk to and I guess it must have been quite cathartic for her to know that you had interest and would understand I think that's exactly it Aylan you'll understand that I think she just she just decided she wanted to talk and I think she just wanted somebody to talk to. That was the, 
you know, that was a sad thing. And of course, she did. We ran, we ran the story, and um, and then from that, she would, sometimes she would phone me, quite a lot of the time she would write to me, and, you know, she would write these long, very very ordinary letters because they turned into you you know we would talk some of them would be a wee bit about not seeing she didn't have a close relationship with her brother or her sister I think you know they clearly had they probably had problems with her state I mean she was the eldest when this happened so I think you know they, they found her difficult to deal with she said so you know as much herself Despite what had gone before, Wendy told Lorna that she did phone her mum and had gone to see her in Stonehaven. I know that she did go back up to Scotland at least once to see her mum, but that was probably, I think, in the 90s, maybe late 90s. And, um, but they never had, they, they would never have a normal mother-daughter relationship. Anyway, I, I think that that, had, was a source of Wendy's real pain as well. Not that she would articulate it like that, but she didn't have that, with obviously, with her own mother. She tried to have it with her own daughter and, and failed. And then latterly, you know, she tried to have contact with her mother again, but it was very sporadic. And I think her mother found it just too difficult. It's dreadfully sad, and there's so many layers there from the... As you say, when she was young, and the comments about wakes, I think that yeah, you wrote that in your article. Actually, I think that uh, she wanted to be thinner for her parents or her dad's approval in particular, um, and she yes. wasn't this kind of. Um, it, in the article, um, I don't know if you have it handy, but she actually gave you her recollections from the night of the murder. Can you recall what she told you about her memories from that night? We danced round that for a wee while because obviously um, this was the first time any person had given, you know, anything other than the court, you know, a first-hand account of what happened that night. And she talked about how she remembered her, her mum had had a drink and I think the children were put to bed early as well. She seemed to remember that. Um, and she realised, she knew that um, her mother and Brian Tevendale were having some sort of relationship, probably as much as you can understand when you're 11 years old. She'd walked in on them kissing. I think her mother was sitting on Brian's lap um, one evening and her mother had asked her not to say anything to anybody. And that was, I think, only weeks before the murder actually happened. Um, so she had an awareness, and because she was the oldest as well, um, she remembers her mum drinking that night. She remembers going to bed, what she described as a bit early. And she remembers the next morning when her father wasn't around. And... I think she did ask her mother where her dad was and her mother said, oh, he's, you know, he's just out, he's away, which again, wouldn't, wouldn't have been uncommon. He did disappear for periods of time. As you heard in the first episode, it was Wendy who was left to finish cooking the lunch for her and her siblings when the detectives arrived to arrest her mother. 
but soon after they were taken away from the northeast and shielded from the scandal that was to emerge. Her grandmother took took them to see her mother when her mother was in uh, held in custody, but I don't think I think it was very traumatic for Wendy. I, I her memories, you know, of of that I think are really quite hard because all of the children at that point were kept away from the trial. When the trial happened, they were all, I think they were taken to a hotel. I think it was in Creef actually. And um, the newspapers were removed and the staff were told not to say anything. So that whole trial happened without them, have, without Wendy in particular, having any understanding really of what was going on. And I think she'd been told by her grandmother and her uncle that her dad was dead. And this was after they'd found his body, obviously, which was weeks later. And her mum had killed her dad. And then she remembers being told at the end of that prolonged hotel stay that her her mum wouldn't be coming home. And that was it. Wendy is an adult looking back on the events of that night, given the fact her mum had been drinking and had put them to bed early. Was she under the impression that her mother knew what was going on? I think Wendy always believed in the best in people. And I think that Wendy, at different points in her life, uh, blamed her dad blamed Brian Tevendale and sometimes blamed her mother. The overall impression, her dad was a very difficult man to live with. And I think Wendy knew that the next morning, knew something bad had happened. I don't think she grieved for her dad. I think she accepted it as a child would of that age. She forgave her mother. She knew her mother latterly had been involved, but she forgave her. Her siblings were aware that she was in contact with you, is that right? Yes, as was her mother as well. Um, because Wendy would say to me, oh, I spoke to my mum, I told my mum that, you know, I, I was talking to you. And I was tempted, you know, to ask Wendy, because I told Wendy, obviously when we'd gone through the whole story, and it certainly wasn't initially, but probably... Probably before we went to print, so it would have been three or four, four phone calls, and I actually said to Wendy, I've met your mum before. And she said, what? And I explained that in my first job. And she, of course, thought that was wonderful. She was saying, oh, that's amazing, that's incredible, and wait till I speak to mum about it. And, of course, at that point, you know, I'm thinking, this woman will not remember who I who I am. But Wendy thought it was fantastic. And I think, again, that was probably another connection that she took as being quite a good sign. And um, I do know that Wendy told her mum that she was talking to Her mum never once said, do not talk to Wendy, never once phoned or made any overtures that, you know, please um, don't do that. I... Um, I think she told. I think she told Angela. I don't know. She was a wee bit nervous of Lloyd. I think Lloyd and her were not close at all. She had a bit more of a relationship with um, Angela. 
Wendy would not have been able to to tell a lie. Wendy would not have been able to um, stop herself telling people. That was just the kind of person she was. She had recollections of being taken to nudist camps. Do you remember much about what she told you about that? Yeah, she talked about, um, in particular, going to Corsica, which you can imagine then, you know, at that time, I mean, any family going to abroad at that time would have been, you know, out with the reach of, of most families, certainly, and certainly most families in the northeast of Scotland. Um, but because of who he was, you know, he, he, he was incredibly wealthy. He had this very, you know, flamboyant lifestyle. He did treat his family really well in terms of, you know, um, how things that they were able to have like holidays and he did take Wendy spoke in detail about the holiday to Corsica and Wendy talked about the nudist beaches because that was the reason that he'd taken the family to Corsica was because he'd found out or knew about a nudist beach and he wanted Sheila to do this but he actually took Wendy as well and he actually told Wendy to get undressed and this was a, a young girl who was already conscious of her weight and appearance anyway and she found that humiliating and really difficult so as much as she had that kind of experience and she you know she would say and when we went to Corsica and we stayed in a really nice hotel and you know mum you know did this and that that clearly was the defining memory of that trip. So he was actually getting his children involved as well, which, you know, I can't imagine how Sheila must have felt about that because I suspect that that would have possibly been, you know, really, really difficult. You know, you've got a young, a young girl, you know, you, I think she was probably about eight or nine at that point. And her dad is saying, right, take all your clothes off. And, you know, Wendy talked about feeling, you know, she did not want to do that, which might, she must have communicated at the time to her mother. And her mother must have felt, God knows how her mother felt, to be honest. I don't know how I would feel. The exposure to nudism had clearly marked Wendy. And Sheila had written that it deeply disturbed her when Max had forced that upon his entire family. Lorna believes had the trial taken place today, there might have been a very different outcome. It's shocking, some of the details reading it in 2020. It would have been horrendous then, but she would have been treated very differently. In fact, there's every single chance she may never have been convicted of that crime. She could have possibly have been regarded, you know, as, you know, a woman in, in, in an abusive marriage in an abusive relationship. The outcome for all couldn't be changed. Max Garvey was dead. His children lost both parents and soon after their grandmother. Trudy and Fred Burse's marriage didn't survive much longer after the trial and they divorced in 1971. They both died of cancer a few years apart in the late 80s. Brian Tevendale died of a heart attack aged 58 
in 2003. He'd remarried and ran a pub in Perthshire and was about to emigrate to Gambia at the time of his death. Four years before he died, he gave his first and last interview and in it he finally admitted he had shot Maxwell Garvey and for the first time ever he revealed what had happened before. I can't remember how she worded it but she said it would be better with Max out of the way. I was shocked but I'd have done anything she wanted. Having Max out of the way meant we could get married and I assumed that was her motive. Looking back on it now, I'm not so sure. There was a lot of money to be gained from it, and I was under her spell. I don't think we knew what was going to happen. It wasn't until later that reality began to hit. Sheila let us in through the kitchen door and took us to the sitting room for drinks. She handed me a loaded tutu rifle that Max kept in his office. After drinks, she took us upstairs to her room, across the hall from the bedroom, and she left us there to wait. It was like a nightmare. Sheila came back and led us to where Max was lying, sleeping, then stood in the doorway in case the children woke up. Max was lying on his back. I shot him in the head, once. I think I put a pillow over the end of the gun to make sure there wouldn't be any sound. And then we went downstairs and scoffed a whole bottle of whiskey. I knew straight away I'd made a big mistake, but there was no going back. I've had to live with that for the last 31 years. I knew I would get caught. But Sheila and I continued our affair and she told people Max had gone flying and not come back. She acted like a weight had been lifted from her. I denied it all. Sheila and I had some time alone at the cop shop and she told me to keep quiet. Either that, or I could take the blame. She said she wasn't getting involved. I had to keep hoping that we would end up together, otherwise it had all been for nothing. Brian was devastated by Sheila's rejection three months after their imprisonment. He had wanted to see her after their release, but that changed over time. I felt a great sense of loss. I think she did it because they wouldn't let her see her kids. I can't say I feel anything about her now. She has her life to get on with, and so do I. What he didn't know was that Sheila had wanted to see him following their release, but was advised it would be frowned upon by the parole board. Plus, she'd also heard he'd struck up a relationship with the woman he'd been writing to. The lovers never saw each other following their strained final meeting through the glass at Craigynch's prison. Sheila developed Alzheimer's and died aged 80 in 2014. Her daughter Wendy also passed away around the same time. I actually got a call from somebody in Somerset and they said that Wendy wasn't well and she was in a psychiatric unit and I think it was about a year after that that I gained through the same person again. I got a, I got a note saying that Wendy had passed away, and I wasn't I wasn't surprised. I was sad. She really was another and forgotten victim. 
of that whole case. Um, and she was entirely innocent. These violent delights have violent ends, and in their triumph die like fire and powder, which as they kiss consume the sweetest honey, is loathsome in his own deliciousness. As in Romeo and Juliet, there were many more victims to the tragedy. Those left living suffered, the guilty and the innocent. In a letter written while in prison, after being denied further visits from her children, Sheila poetically encapsulated her losses and her lessons. I know only too well that the highest, greatest and most lasting values in life cannot be bought with money, but can be gleaned from life's bitter and harsh experiences. Perhaps those of us who realise how far we have strayed from what we could have been, from what we should have been. Perhaps only those of us who, through our own faults, our own mistakes, have an endured deep abyss of loneliness, regret, self-recrimination and separation from those who are dearest to us, are capable of becoming more sensitive to the fears, anxieties and sufferings of others. Perhaps those of us who realise how far we have fallen know too the strength which comes from attempting to rise again. Thank you for listening to the storyteller Violent Delights. There's a special bonus episode to come with a new and previously unheard insight into the case and an interview you won't want to miss. But for now, I'd like to thank Kate Dickey for bringing to life so perfectly the words of Sheila Garvey and all the other voice actors who've given their time to help tell the story. Thank you also to Nick J. Tyler, who wrote and performed the music, except the title track, which is Searchlight by Cathedral. A special thank you to the retired police officers and journalists who were extremely understanding, carrying out remote interviews during this difficult time of COVID, and for some having to learn new technology skills to get the best possible quality recordings. Thank you, the listeners, for your patience with the less than perfect audio at times, and for your continued support. If you've enjoyed this, then please rate and review on iTunes to help others hear about the story. This is an entirely independent podcast, written, produced and edited by me, Isla Traquere, and it's been a privilege to share this story with you. Mm -hmm.